0: First and foremost, why did you decide now... <laughs> as I... As I suspected. ah, oh, it's Saad's law, isn't it? Right, let's try this again. This is Wicked Problems. I'm Richard Delavan. There's very good
1: evidence that we should limit warming to below 1.5 degrees. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, we can't do it in the near term. So the only way to actually keep sight of the North Star is to actually accept we're in the wrong hemisphere (laughs) for a few decades. It'll be below the horizon. We have to get moving in order to bring it onto the horizon again once we've lost sight of it because we've actually exceeded the 1.5 degree warming limit. That's with a big question mark about uncertainties and whether the climate system will actually play ball. A big if that should not give us
0: comfort, but rather give us discomforts Discussions about limiting climate warming from burning fossil fuels to under 1.5 degrees. The gap between what some scientists have been saying 1.5 is deader than a and what some others have been saying. There is no science out there or no scenario out there that says that the phase out of fossil fuel is what's going to achieve 1.5. 1.5 is my North Star. Has been a theme on wicked problems. As the climate summit in Dubai kicked off with the controversy about whether the COP president believes the science behind 1.5, a paper was published by climate scientist Andy Reisinger, who lectures at an Australian university and sits on New Zealand's Climate Change Commission, as well as being a former IPCC working group chair. It makes for uncomfortable reading because it strongly suggests that we grapple with the policy implications of actively planning for a world where we go above 1.5 and how to make sure that situation is temporary. He's speaking and writing in a personal capacity, nothing to do with his day jobs. And it feels like he's saying something radical that departs from the consensus because it feels taboo to acknowledge that never exceeding 1.5 is no longer possible. Reisinger's point is that plan B has become plan A. And he wants policymakers to catch up to where the science has actually been for a while. I caught up with him from New Zealand, early for him and late for me here in the UK, which partly explains the dog malfunction. But when you've been staring into the abyss for too long, one of the nice things about dogs is they bring you back into the present, and the reality that your existential dread won't stop them from eating a walk and wanting play. Here's our conversation. So thank you, Andy Risinger, for joining us on Wicked Problems. It's a pleasure to to join you, Richard. Okay. We had a slight dog malfunction earlier, so this is take two. For the listener's benefit, they're somewhat used to at least hearing Django in the background snoring sometimes, so people who are regular listeners to the show will not be completely put off. As I said in the intro, you are speaking in a personal capacity. The paper you have written along with Oliver Gayton, is also produced as an independent scientific consultant, and the paper is Temporary Overshoot, Origins, Prospects, and a Long Path Ahead. What do we mean by temporary overshoot, and why do we need to be talking about this now? So the main motivation for the
1: paper is that obviously the Paris Agreement has set a long-term temperature goal of limiting warming to well below 2 degrees and pursuing efforts to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. And 1.5 degrees has become the I guess the focal point of climate action over the, over recent years where all efforts are at least all stated efforts are to limit warming to that level and yet we're seeing temperatures climbing year on year in an accelerating fashion over the last few years and greenhouse gas emissions rising and certainly not coming down so that raised the question when are we going to exceed that level of 1.5 degrees and what do we do afterwards. And so the most ambitious scenarios that have been assessed in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change tend to have a slight exceedance of that limit of 1.5 degrees, but then come down again. And so the purpose of our paper is to actually explore what that means. How did we get to the situation? Where did Mm -hmm. the notion arise from that to stay within a limit, we can still exceed the limit as long as we then come down again? What are the risks and
0: impacts and how could we actually achieve that? Right. I have to say I read the paper and I was slightly chilled. We're talking in the what the fourth or fifth day of the COP twenty eight summit, which has had its own ups and downs. Certainly in the last seventy-two hours there's been quite a debate about the science, um, about 1.5 and, and what that would what would be required to keep under that limit quite a vigorous thing we should want to ask you to, to re-litigate on this conversation, but we're all, I think, aware of that. But there's been a quite a, a determined effort for the tone of the entire summit to be keeping things positive, to talk about the progress we've made, talk about the tripling of renewables being an achievable goal by 2030. And 1.5 is literally all over the rhetoric. And so here you are putting a paper out in the middle of the COP28 saying, as you put it, 1.5, essentially, that plan B has now become plan A. You say in your introduction that a temporary overshoot of 1.5 degrees C would be clearly worse than if we managed to never exceed that level of warming, but better than a permanent exceedance. And this forces uncomfortable conversation on researchers, policymakers, and non governmental organizations. What used to be distinctly second best plan B has by now become plan A, the best option we still have available, which is something that suggests that there is this gap between what we're still talking about in public and what people who have been really focused on the science, people who are deep into it like yourself, been painfully aware of for some time. So is there a gap? And would you agree?
1: There there certainly is a gap, but also that gap isn't actually new. So even the IPCC released a special report on global warming of 1.5 degrees back in 2018 And for those who read the report carefully, that report already found that under the emission scenarios that represent plausible but the most ambitious changes, we still reach 1.5 degrees in the early 2030s. And recent reports by the IPCC released in 2021 and 2022 have only confirmed that. So the the finding that we're on track to reach and subsequently exceed 1.5 degrees isn't new at all. What is becoming clearer is that this is indeed the trajectory we're on. And as we say in our paper, that forces an uncomfortable conversation. What are we going to do about the fact that we're not limiting warming to 1.5 degrees? We are on track, even if we took heroic actions to greatly accelerate our greenhouse gas emission reduction actions to exceed 1.5 degrees buy as little as possible, and then bring it back down again. Um, so we have become used to talking about limiting warming to 1.5 degrees, meaning exceeding warming of 1.5 degrees, provided that we bring it back down again over the next few decades before the end of the 21st century. And of course, the issue is that forces us to make different choices in the long run around greenhouse gas Targets So to limit warming to 1.5 degrees, uh, net zero CO2 emissions are approximately appropriate and sufficient. If we want to reduce warming again below a peak level, then we need to reach collectively net negative CO2 emissions. That's a different policy proposition, but also it raises the question of what impacts can we actually avoid if we bring temperature back down again, but having temporarily exceeded a certain warming level. And the it's clear that there are a lot of risks implied or in, involved in exceeding warming of mm-hmm. 1.5 degrees, even if we then bring temperature back down again. But the the, the literature isn't very strong in quantifying, demonstrating just how much of those risks we could then reduce again by bringing temperature down again. Yet, right. that is a prerequisite to motivate the action to to not just stop at net zero
0: emissions, but to actually reach net negative CO2 emissions. Right. And I want to come back to that in a moment in terms of what the kinds of things that would be required to sustain an effort like that. But the kinds of things that might be irreversible, and as you say, the, are, the, the literature is not conclusive because it's a hypothetical we were hoping to never have to experience in terms of effects that might persist, even if we achieve after an overshoot going back down under 1.5. So the things I I see most often cited are things like sea ice loss at the poles. The British Antarctic Survey suggested that there's a certain amount of sea level rise that's now baked in no matter what we do. Last month, I believe, so they were talking about up to five meters sea level rise as being just the literally nothing we can do about that. Obviously, there'd be extinction events that if certain things were to happen beyond a certain temperature threshold that you can't imagine bringing back some of those species, at least not in the short term. What are the other kinds of things that are the things we should be concerned about? So I think it's important to recognize that there's different reasons and different ways in which some impacts
1: may not be reversible. As you said, species extinctions, it's an extremely long shot to bring a species back once it's become truly extinct. So that may be a once it's gone, it's lost forever. And bringing temperature back down again will not bring that species back. But even more so, it applies to people who will have died in a heat wave when we were at 1.7 degrees of warming. You most certainly cannot bring those people back. That's the cold, hard reality. The losses and damages that are sustained during that overshoot period, in many instances, permanent losses. There are other types of impacts like sea level rise, which aren't related to the instantaneous amount of warming, but rather reflect cumulative warming over time. And often cumulative warming, not just in excess of 1.5 degrees, but cumulative warming in excess of pre-industrial levels of warming. So as long as we remain at warming above pre-industrial levels, there will be sea level rise. I'm always uncomfortable with saying sea level rise no matter what we do, because of course what we do matters. And of course, the amount of action we take matters, but the amount of sea level rise will depend on that. But there's only one direction in which sea level will go, which is up. We cannot control whether sea level goes up. That's a given, but we can still control the amount by which it goes up. Bringing temperature back down again from, say, a temporary overshoot at 1.7 degrees to, say, 1.4 degrees will still result in sustained sea level rise. It will rise less than if we had kept kept temperature at 1.7, but it will still, still go up. And then there's, of course, other impacts where the impact may not in itself be irreversible. The society which has been impacted during a period of sustained excess temperature will be a different society than if we had not allowed temperature to rise to that level. And there's a lot of evidence in literature how, for example, health effects from malnutrition have a intergenerational dimension, and that's both in terms of what's passed on to babies through their mothers who experience malnutrition during gestation, but it's also of course societies that are disrupted by sustained droughts, their infrastructure, their governance systems are crumbling under stress, and so those societies will be less well positioned yeah. to make use of lower temperatures even when those temperatures come back down again so it 's quite a multifaceted space, there's always benefits from having lower temperatures compared to simply leaving them at the level at which temperature might peak. How much of the benefit accrues to whom, that's a question that hasn't been well explored. And I guess we would benefit from having a more systematic light shone on that because that creates the value proposition for why it's worth bringing temperature back down again and why it's worth persisting in efforts that go beyond net zero CO2.
0: It feels like there's almost an emperor's new clothes element here in that I understand what you're saying in the synthesis report earlier this year, the 2018 special report on 1.5. Jim Ski in his first outing in a major news outlet interview with Deutsche Welle over the summer seemed to be signaling in a way that previous IPCC chairs had not about overshoot being a serious thing and therefore beginning to play around with a form of words about how to talk about every 10th of a degree matters beyond that in ways that be very familiar in the scientific community, but from a mainstream media outlet, hearing it it's quite, was quite striking You know, for a general audience who might not have heard this before. For What you're saying is that if I understand it right, the reason you're doing this, have this paper out now is to try to kind of bring focus to this conversation because it's time in a way that we can no longer avoid. Would that be fair?
1: Yeah. I mean, increasingly, certainly from my perspective, there is an important political dimension at play here, of course, that also constrains what formal office holders in the UNFCCC or IPCC can say, Mm -hmm. because some things have not changed. It's still true that immediate rapid reduction of greenhouse gas emissions are crucial, whichever way you look at it. Also, rapid reduction of greenhouse gas emissions are crucial, even if we expect to exceed 1.5 degrees, because the less we exceed 1.5 degrees, the greater our chance to eventually bring temperature back down below that level again. So there is a clear risk by talking about overshoot that it would be seen as devaluing the importance of early action because it's a long-term game and eventually emissions have to come down again. So Mm. let's focus on the long-term. Let's not sweat the near-term. That would be fundamentally the wrong Mm. message. Mm. Rapid, urgent action is just as urgent as it was before. It's just that it's now time to recognize that Talking about limiting warming to 1.5 degrees has become something that we look at in the rearview mirror and that forces us to adopt different driving habits, if <laughs> you like, if I stay with that metaphor. <laughs> including in terms of how we talk about longer term targets hmm. to ensure that we are actually on track to limit warming, to pursue efforts, as the Paris Agreement puts it, to limit warming to 1.5 degrees, which may involve us approaching that that goal from above rather
0: than from below in temperature terms. I think it's something, I, again, the reluctance that you put your finger on there, I, I think is something that's quite palpable. There's a, a fear almost, of the possible negative consequences of losing 1.5 as being a motivating thing to drive discussions around producing emissions faster, GHG in general and CO2 in particular. Over the past few months, we've had a number of news items like the Hansen paper, like the other paper from Imperial talking about the role of aerosols perhaps being undercounted in terms of keeping temperature rise lower than it would otherwise have been. You can almost hear the really uncomfortable reactions. I I went around asking journalists, analysts, other scientists to say, what will this mean? It's like, well, people don't really, most general public doesn't really know about 1.5. They don't really think about it all that much. But I get the sense that's not quite true, that has actually been quite centered in corporate sustainability reports and the public discourse. And even as we've heard, again, in his defense, Dr. Sultan this week saying perhaps being slightly misquoted about saying the science didn't support something about a scenario about 1.5 without massive fossil fuel reductions or phase out that he was kind of very much repeating something he's repeated for years, or at least since he took on this role, which is that 1.5 is his North star, quote unquote, not entirely sure what that means, but your paper would suggest that the North star would be something that we don't just keep on one side of, but can be orient us back should we actually do this overshoot? Yes, policy and,
1: and even more so politics does need catchphrases, if you like, that serve as the, the clarion call to action. And 1.5 degrees has served that role. And I think it would be a tragedy even just for that purpose to have to let go of 1.5 degrees, quite apart from the fact that there's very good evidence that we should limit warming to below 1.5 degrees. Yeah. But you know, the fact of the matter is, we can't do it in the near term. So the only way to actually keep sight of the North Star is to actually accept when the wrong hemisphere <laughs> for a few decades, it'll be below the horizon. We have to get moving in order to bring it onto the horizon again once we've lost sight of it because we've actually exceeded the 1.5 degree warming mm-hmm. limit. But you know, there's a lot of, I think we have to take very seriously the, the, so the requests for caution. There was another blog post recently posted by Yuri Rogels from Imperial about overconfidence and overshoot in the sense that we don't actually know, even just geophysically, mm. how feasible it is to get temperatures back down again, right. even if and when we will have reached global net zero CO2 emissions. And so it's really important to recognize that this is not a done deal, even just in our understanding of how the climate system responds to it. In our paper, we leave that sort of standing, but sort of to one side. But even if we can get back down to it, how will we? What are we going to need to know and what are we going to need to do to then achieve it? And can we please bring this to the agenda? Because we have to, if we want to keep hold of 1.5 degrees as our North Star. We can't pretend that we're still tracking towards it, but it's about to dip
0: below the horizon. I think that's a very useful metaphor. I think there was another one you mentioned earlier about driving, and it was something that in speaking with Susan Joy Hassel, who's collaborated a lot with Mike Lee Mann at UPenn, her analogy or her metaphor was... It's not like at below 1.5 we're safe and beyond 1.5 we're screwed. It's more like we're on the CO2 highway. And if you miss your exit on a highway, what do you do? You slow down and you get off at the next exit. You don't just keep driving until you're you get wet and you're suddenly in the ocean. You find the next available exit and you turn around. And I suppose that kind of metaphor seems to, I found that to be more satisfying than a lot of other things I've heard and the idea that like realistically, people do miss targets or people miss goals and you have to find a way to, to as difficult as it might be, you want to avoid missing it if you can. But if you do miss it, to miss it by as little as possible and then to find ways back. So your paper also then, I think, raises, I think, another set of uncomfortable things, which becomes a little clearer why people have really not wanted to talk about this before, which is the burden sharing questions between sectors, between countries, because ultimately in your conclusions, there are three elements of what we would have to do in an overshoot scenario. So can you take us briefly through those three elements? I about it's CDR to keep going with emissions reductions, and then the other forcing you know, gases, events that we would need to reduce as quickly as possible. So what it, can you just take us through that very briefly? Yeah. So, I mean, based on our current understanding of science, and that's
1: with a big question mark about uncertainties and whether the climate system will actually play ball once we do that, Understood. That's sure. a big if that should not give us comfort, but rather give us discomfort and more impetus to limit warming to as low a level as possible because we don't know whether we can come back down. So keeping that very firmly in front and in the back of our minds, which makes a rather crowded mind already, (laughs) the ways to achieve a decline in global temperature, we set out basically three archetypes of actions that could drive that. One is to increase carbon dioxide removal via human activities, where we actively take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and put it back into more durable carbon pools. Coming known as CDR or carbon dioxide removal, and we and it would mean that we have to keep increasing the amount of carbon dioxide removal beyond the levels needed, even just to get us to net zero CO two emissions.
0: That's one element. And on that was something that I think again your paper also points out that most policymakers don't probably haven't internalized the fact that their own net zero scenarios include a certain amount of CDR as well as CCS by the by mid-century. And I think you also have a calculation in the paper about what it would take. So I just want to make sure I'm, I'm getting this right. So the first of all, you say the integrated assessment models indicate net negative CO2 emissions of 10 gigatons or more by 2100. And that as a best estimate, achieving a temperature decline of just under one 0.1 degrees C would require cumulative net negative emissions of about 200 gigatons CO2 after net zero CO2 emissions are reached. So in other words, at the best case scenario of 10 gigatons of CDR by year X, that it would take at least 20 years at that pace, if not more, to be able to achieve a 0.1 degree C decline, theoretically.
1: Yes. um, Although we have to So There's a difference between CDR, which is simply us taking CO2 out of the atmosphere, and net negative emissions, which is the net balance between CO2 we keep putting into the atmosphere and how much we're taking out of it. So CDR just refers to the act of taking CO2 out of the atmosphere. But in most scenarios, we will still put some CO2 into into the atmosphere because some emissions are just too hard to avoid. So net negative emissions are achieved when The amount of co2 we still keep putting into the atmosphere is outweighed by the amount we take out of it and that's exactly the first two action points to achieve net negative emissions we can either further increase the amount of carbon dioxide we take out of the atmosphere or we could simply reduce the amount of co2 we keep putting into the atmosphere while keeping the amount of CDR the same both would achieve net negative CO2 emissions. And that's ultimately what matters based on our current understanding to bring temperature back down again. And while a lot of focus has been on CDR, how can we upscale upscale CDR? Can we upscale CDR? What are the trade-offs? What are the potential adverse side effects of doing so? There tends to be less focus in conversations about you could achieve the same net negative CO2 emissions by simply getting rid of other CO2 emissions that we expect in those scenarios to still be making and not stress so much about how can we further upscale CDR. But it is true that we do need CDR if we want to reach net zero CO2 emissions because our gross emissions of CO2 will not come down to zero. Some emissions are just too hard to avoid based on current and even highly imaginative technology scenarios to avoid emissions of CO2 entirely. So so, so that's That's the inevitability of CDR, but the scale at which CDR is needed depends both on how much net negative CO2 emissions we want to achieve, but also very much on how much CO2 do we expect to still keep putting into the atmosphere while scrambling to take it back out again. So that's the two elements to achieve net negative CO2 emissions. But then the third and entirely non-trivial element is that CO2 isn't the only gas that causes warming. The most prominent non CO2 warming comes from methane, and methane is a short lived greenhouse gas. So, for CO2, the warming effects are related to its cumulative emissions over time. Whereas for a short lived gas like methane, the warming is basically driven by the recent and current rate of emissions. So, if the rate of emission goes down, so will the warming effect from methane. And the lower our methane emissions can go, the less warming methane. Will cause. And in most of the models that are used in those integrated assessment models, there's an assumption, partially because there's not a lot of work being done on new technologies that could be developed and deployed. There's an assumption that there's a hard floor on methane emissions, especially from agriculture, that you simply cannot avoid. And All all that we're pointing out is that if you could tackle that hard floor, if we could reduce methane emissions substantially further than what is assumed is possible, that would reduce warming by another potentially 0.2 degrees between the peak and the end of the 21st century. And a lot of people are saying that the scale at which bioenergy combined with carbon capture and storage is assumed and is deployed in integrated assessment models is rather ambitious, to put it mildly, and I guess my personal view is there hasn't been a commensurate ambition or imagination in saying, what is it that we could do further to reduce methane emissions? Because it would also deliver a reduction in global warming levels below their temporary peak if we could go further, and for example, there's a lot of work going on, that's something from past work that i've been involved in in developing inhibitors or a vaccine to reduce methane emissions from ruminants which are dominant source of methane emissions in agriculture Mm -hmm. if those were developed and deployed which is very challenging across different production systems around the world and given that in many countries agriculture isn't a high earning business and therefore any costs associated with mitigation are impossible to be borne by subsistence farmers. But if we took this seriously and put effort into it, there is a potential to tackle what looks like a hard floor and often goes unnoticed when we talk about how could we reduce temperature below an intermediary peak above 1.5 degrees such that warming levels come down below 1.5 degrees again. It would be foolish to think that's all we have to do and then we're done, But it is a component. So together we have three components. It's increasing carbon dioxide removal, reducing the amount of CO2 we put into into the atmosphere in the first place, beyond wherever levels might be once we have reached net zero CO2, and reducing methane further, again, below whatever level we might have reached at the point that warming peaks. Right. And and, all three of them are highly challenging. That's the issue. None of them are easy solutions, which is why... Actually, achieving a climate temperature is a formidable challenge, given that all efforts right now are to get to net zero, and they look pretty
0: challenging. And I suppose that, the, as you say in the paper, in your conclusions, as you head towards the conclusions, that you're, but, if you think that the conversations are tough now about how to get to net zero, the ch- conversations about how you get even further become much tougher. As you say, in heading right before your conclusions, you're talking about the fact that it's the uneven distribution of burdens to physically deliver both gross CDR or net negative emissions through the lens of fairness. Instruments of financial redistribution will need to be refined. If an entire country goes deeply net negative, the polluter pays principle will not work anymore. As it would imply a negative emissions cap and emissions trading schemes, the state revenues from carbon pricing will also become net negative. Achieving net negative emissions at scale will rely on public money, and so it, it goes on and on about the idea of the fact that even between sectors, if we're trying to, if governments are having to pick winners and losers about which sectors are going to have to take the hit to be able to get further CO two reductions, it's an absolute nightmare. And you, can, if we can't even have a conversation about how to do the easy stuff this feels like it's going to be going to make that look like a picnic.
1: It's certainly going to make it harder, but I think that's the reason why we have to start talking about it now, rather than only once we've reached net zero and everybody says, well, that was fun. (laughs) What shall we do now? So, and that's in part because, I mean, again, net zero along with 1.5 has become, so net zero has become the secondary North Star, if you like, of policy making. But often that's based on a simplistic assumption that because the world has to reach net zero CO two emissions in mm-hmm. the early twenty fifties, everybody individually has to reach net zero. And that's there's no good reason to to, right. to use that, and yet it is being used almost universally. And there's no good reason for a number of reasons. One is simply that for some sectors it's far easier to reduce emissions than for others. For some countries it's far easier or if not easier at least they have much higher capacity to achieve that than others. So it is a question of if we ever want to be in a space where we reach net negative CO2 emissions somebody has to actually plan for it at least individually. So net negative co2 emissions at a minimum have to become a topic of conversation in the most developed countries which arguably have the highest capacity but then raises burden sharing issues around do those net negative co2 emissions have to occur in those countries what's the role of international transfers because based on most most economic and 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 biogeochemistry models we assume that there's a lot of potential to achieve carbon dioxide removal through forest management and afforestation in developing countries. And so that raised the whole question of burden-sharing and, and, and fairness of those approaches. These aren't fundamentally different from burden-sharing discussions that, that are taking place now and every time that parties under the Paris Agreement meet. But they add another dimension because you lose even... I guess the point is that even in domestic policymaking, where net zero has become a powerful device to set ambition at country level, but also a lot of individual sectors and companies are adopting net zero targets on the assumption that is what is needed to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. And yet, A, it is not adequate from a distributional fairness perspective because mm-hmm. some you reach net zero, by some going net negative to allow others to not manage to achieve net zero. But then fundamentally, net zero isn't adequate. Once we've exceeded 1.5 degrees, the only way to limit warming to 1.5 degrees is to achieve net negative emission targets, not net zero. So driving that shift in target setting, but then also policies is something important even at the domestic space, because right now we often rely on emitters driving the demand for carbon dioxide removal and that works as long as you have a net zero target, it no longer works once you have a net negative target, or if not all emissions are covered in the same scheme that drives removals. So the role of a public, a social good perspective to drive sustained removals beyond the point of net zero is inevitable. How do we start a conversation around that? To test Mm. and build political and societal support for that sort of long-term investment and to ensure policy mechanisms can be adjusted and the more baked in they are as a tool now the longer it will take to transition those policy mechanisms into something that's fit for net negative rather than just fit for net zero there's also of course a widespread confusion between net zero co2 which is needed to limit warming and net zero greenhouse gas emissions which would drive a reduction temperature because net zero greenhouse gas emissions generally implies net negative CO2 emissions as well as reductions in other greenhouse gases. But it's often very opaque in how that mix would look because countries don't tend to publish or then stick to very detailed plans on a gas-by-gas basis. So there's a lot of work to be done to disentangle that, to drive concerted action to actually Get there and sustain at least net negative CO2 emissions along with further reductions in other greenhouse gases.
0: It it feels almost like that there's a, it's kind of a no win scenario from a communications perspective, right? I mean, in that we have to some extent, you could argue that we've become a victim of the success of the effort to make net zero 1.5 a fixture in the climate conversation. And now that has to some extent succeeded. We now face the challenge of having to modify that thinking that's now been bedded in and policy at enterprise level, at individual level, at country level, in a lot of places where, again, I imagine that there are probably some people who are saying, oh, geez, Andy, not now. Why are you making my life harder right now? We just got to this point. Why do we have to have this conversation? So has that been a reaction that you've gotten? What's been the reaction amongst your peers in the community and since this paper has been out it's only been a few days but i imagine there's been some reactions but probably hasn't been too much reaction to that paper in
1: particular in in part because we feel we're not saying anything new we're just saying aloud what can be deduced from uh, the ipcc sixth assessment report in all its different dimensions it's just a question of where does that leave us so in a way you know we're not proposing any anything radical here. We're just putting it on the table. But I guess it's important to recognize that the only way to get to net negative CO two is via net zero. So net zero remains the crucial near term requirement, and the, the sooner anybody can get to net zero, the better, and the more consistent with efforts to limit warming to as little above 1.5 degrees as possible (laughs) with a view to recognize that once we're above and want to keep talking about 1.5 degrees, we have to bring temperature back down again. So it is, I mean, it is a tricky balancing act to not take the focus away from net zero and the importance of near-term action, even if that's no longer adequate to limit warming to 1.5 degrees it's perfectly adequate to help us limit warming to 1.6 degrees or 1.7 degrees. And again, it's important to recognize that we don't want to say, hey, 1.6, 1.7, 1.8, whatever. We'll bring it back down again later. Don't you worry. Just do do what you can. It's more than do what you can. Crucial remains, (laughs) it, it remains crucial that we take decisive Radical, radically accelerated near-term mitigation action to limit warming to as low a level as possible. Mm. But it does take a long time to then transition ways of thinking. And so we have to allow a perspective of what happens beyond net zero to become part of our conversations. Because right. if we manage to get to net zero CO2, maybe not in the mm. early 2050s, maybe in the 2060s, That's only a good 30 years away. It's taken us from 1990 to 2023 to even just have meaningful targets. We still don't have policies that allow allow us to achieve those targets that we only just put on the table by by, by countries around the world. So 30 years disappears rather quickly on us. And it's important that there's a longer term perspective that the world does not stop once we reach 2050. Climate change action cannot stop once the world reaches 2050 and wherever feasible, we should not plan to reach net zero only in 2050. If you can get there earlier, it would be crucial to do so because that's the only way that the world as a whole can get to net zero CO2 at that early timeframe. So it is relevant, even though it doesn't change the fundamental requirement to get to net zero as a milestone, not as an
0: end point of your journey. Right. And I think that people are absolutely responsible. I think that you have emphasized that as of the communicators, other scientists who want to make that point, that this is not meant to let people off the hook. It's not meant to be able to provide a license for business as usual to continue beyond the extent that it has. So I think that's well understood, and I take that as read. I guess what are you hoping will be the reaction? You wanted to start a conversation. You want to inject this more into the discourse. Um, what would success look like to you? If what would, would be how the conversation would be different a year from now? I guess I'm hoping that you you would see in country
1: plans the expectations what they're going to do once they reach net zero, because in for many countries they have a net zero, whether it's CO two or greenhouse gas target makes a difference, but let's mm-hmm. just keep net zero sort of as a um, not further described um, focal point for climate policy. Um, by 2050, that's you not know, currently 27 years away. What's your plan for year 28? What's your plan mm-hmm. for year 30 from now? Uh, so to, to not having to suddenly, today is another day, what shall we do today? Having achieved our goal to more clearly mark that point as a milestone, not as a destination, at which point we will have done our bit to towards global climate efforts. So it's right. is to inject a longer term tra- trajectory on that front. But it's also a, a, a suggestion for accelerating and d- d- developing a typology of research to understand the impacts and the risks that a declining temperature would actually reduce or avoid such that the next IPCC report can develop a clearer value. So so that the next IPCC report can develop a clearer value proposition of why it's worthwhile to bring temperature back down again beyond an intermediary peak that will reflect just whatever the world is able to muscle up to in its seventh assessment cycle. Because the sixth assessment cycle made clear and reinforced that every tenth of a degree of warming matters. The lower we can keep warming, the better. Risks increase with every increment of warming. There was a clear message. We don't know whether and which risks decline with every declining increment of warming. So if we can assemble research questions that address that with a clear purpose to say that's why it's worthwhile, but also in some cases, that's why it's crucial to not let warming exceed 1.5 by as little as possible because the risks and damages that will have occurred at that level of peak warming will not come down again. So it is actually important to drive away from an over-reliance and overshoot by making clear that some things you cannot recover from. What we're doing in the near term is crucial for some impacts. And yet what we're doing in the longer term will be crucial to avoid risks that otherwise might have been sustained if we bring don't bring temperatures back down again. Right. So it's to have a clear view of what can we do as researchers to assemble the information that ultimately decision makers and societal discourse needs about where's our longer term journey headed at the same time, keeping and accelerating pressure on near-term actions because in many cases that's the only way to limit risks, at least in the near term. There's an entirely different question yet how adapting to climate change, how supporting the most vulnerable communities might look different. And I think that's a very wide open question. What are adaptation pathways under overshoot compared to just a near-term perspective? They may not look very different in part because You never know whether you are on a temporary overshoot trajectory unless and until you actually look back in hindsight and say, she really did manage to bring temperature back down again. So it would be foolish to bank on it and not take certain adaptation actions in the hope the temperature will come down again. But still remains to be explored, including how the capacity of society to deal with the impact of climate change might be eroded by higher warming levels and what the international community needs to do to
0: manage that collective risk and look after the most vulnerable countries in society. We could go on for absolutely hours. And you've been so generous with your time, Andy. I don't want to keep you from your breakfast any longer. The last question I wanted to ask was in preparing for this conversation, I went back and looked at a couple of different conversations from, I guess, former colleagues of yours in Thelma Krug speaking about a year and a bit ago to a conference around governance around CDR and other things of dealing with potential overshoot scenarios. And this was a conference with folks from IPCC and folks from the Carnegie Foundation and a few other groups. And so Thelma Krug's presentation ended on a slide that talked about something that isn't talked about in your paper, which was solar radiation management and the need, particularly because of the potential consequences for, African nations in particular, and other members, other countries in the global South, to be part of any conversation around governance of such things. If a lot of taboos are starting to fall, and things that we haven't talked about before, and your paper is a contribution to that, is there a reason that you would have stayed away from including any mention of solar radiation management in the paper? Or is that simply opening a can of... of a Pandora's box, can of worms, pick your metaphor, that you simply didn't want to go near, that this was enough of a hornet's nest you were going to sting up. So in in our paper, where we talk about
1: how to achieve a temporary overshoot, how to ensure that the exceedance of 1.5 degrees is only temporary, the ways to achieve it are nothing new. They're all part of current mitigation strategies. They simply say, you've got to keep doing that beyond the level of reaching zero CO2 and wherever else you might have got to with the other greenhouse gases at that point. But there's nothing fundamentally different in in what you can do. And to some extent, the governance needed to assess the risks of it. Solar radiation management is a fundamentally different type of approach because A, it doesn't address greenhouse gas emissions per se,
0: I appreciate it. It's answering a different question from the one your paper sets out to address. But I suppose the implications of the paper are that in a temporary overshoot scenario, that there are certain, again, and I think I was going to make a a glib comment about the Russian oligarch who has a pavilion at COP28 about bringing back woolly mammoths to somehow mitigate methane loss in Siberian permafrost or whatever. And I thought that was funny, but then you brought me up short by referring to the human cost in lives that extreme heat events and wet bubble events above every the risk factors that go up for every one degree C of that overshoot scenario. So I suppose. Is it not something that naturally follows from the conclusion that we must talk about beyond net zero if we're in an overshoot scenario? that more people are going to raise this. is like, sh- should we not be looking at ways to shield the most vulnerable from these effects that we, can, we now acknowledge we're not going to avoid?
1: So I guess it doesn't follow naturally for me for two reasons. One is that if we care about managing the risks to the most vulnerable, we need investment, finance, support for adaptation, for managing those risks. If that's not forthcoming by global community efforts, then solar radiation management seems an unlikely way to be even nearly as effective in managing the risks to the most vulnerable, if that's truly what we care about. But the other fundamental issue is that the only way in which solar radiation management could make sense is if you know you are on a temporary overshoot trajectory and you just want to shave off a tenth of a degree from that peak, and that's known as peak shaving for solar radiation management now the problem is that we will not know whether we truly are on a temporary overshoot trajectory until we've actually achieved it right whereas to do solar radiation management in a world that keeps increasing its greenhouse gas emissions or just doesn't manage to achieve net zero is a hiding to nothing because you're constantly having to invest more and more into solar radiation management while Earth temperature is being driven upward by the accumulation of CO2 in the atmosphere. So for me, solar radiation management, with all its attendant risks and side effects arising from abrupt termination from a globally uneven um, deployment, which could manage risks for some populations but increase risks for others, the only way to govern solar radiation management would rely on a functioning, truly global community effort. And yet that's exactly what we're lacking. So the only way to govern solar radiation management is to undertake all those collective actions that are necessary to limit warming in the first place, in which case solar radiation management may no longer be needed. Whereas if we don't have that global response, then solar radiation management, in my personal view, would be a really bad idea because it doesn't address the problem and presents us with escalating costs and risks. So there's a, it it won't stop people from talking about it, but I think we have to be clear that to manage the risks, which clearly are in theory manageable by the global community, the only way that the global community would actually manage those risks, if it it actually pulls together, it's concerted, collaborative, mutually supportive actions, which are prerequisites to address greenhouse gas emissions and support adaptation and provide finance and provide an equitable support for developing countries, for the poorest within society in the first place, in which case solar radiation management drops a long way down the priority list, I think. But that's my personal view very much. I'm not an expert in solar radiation management, but that's based on my involvement in conversations on that matter.
0: It was a sorry, but an unfair question coming at you from left field on that. But I, but other, just the final thought: anything, any final message that if you were to import it to the folks who you'd like to be reading your paper, changing the conversation you mentioned, you'd want to see some of these issues addressed in national climate plans. Anything else that you'd want people to take away from this conversation? I guess it is simply
1: to recognize there is a tension between keeping a focus on near-term catchphrases that are. For better or worse, vital to drive climate action. The near term efforts remain important, but time is too short to leave the more uncomfortable conversations until later. If we want to achieve a cohesive approach and not talk increasingly in counterfactuals when we use 1.5 as our North Star, it has to become part of our conversation. The challenge is on everybody how to make that a constructive discomfort rather than a destructive one. Certainly, our aim was to make it a constructive one but how this actually gets done is down to everybody involved in those conversations
0: well i think we'll leave it there the paper is temporary overshoot origins prospects and a long path ahead andy risinger thank you so much for joining us today thanks very much richard pleasure thanks for listening to wicked problems and if you like this conversation please share it and leave us a rating and review on apple podcasts or spotify it really helps people find the show you can subscribe to our newsletter at news.wickedproblems.uk, where you can also find more episodes with Richard Delvin and Claire Brady and all our show notes. And consider becoming a paid subscriber to help support our work. You can also find us wherever you get your podcasts. For now, thanks for listening. Did you decide that now <laughs> As I as expected. I